0: News, 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 New York City,
1: FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute, (laughs) FAQ, it's FAQ NYC, Mayor Mike Bloomberg is running for president after a stammer stepping about runs from 2005 all the way through 2019, he's just about there, he's apologizing for a bunch of stuff, sorry black and Latino people, sorry women, uh, no sorry Muslims yet. But one thing that I've been thinking a lot about that he's been very unapologetic for is not sorry about his pronouncement that, hey, uh, privacy is basically dead. We're going to have more visibility and less privacy. You know, he comes to office right after nine eleven. You have the ring of steel and the cameras downtown. And of course, in his own business, it's like, This came up with the women's stuff, right? They have the badges and they know every time you leave your desk and how long you're in the bathroom for. And all the bros there from the trader culture were like using those to like find the women who they were interested in 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 creepy ways. But I bring all this up because the NYPD was just present at a city council hearing. They loved them some oversight about body cameras, uh, which we now have in New York and uh, with police officers. And uh, we're pretty far into the uh, rollout now. That's come with some disturbing developments and a lot of other developments we actually don't know a damn thing about in terms of how this is actually working. So, Albert Foxconn of Stop the Security Technology Oversight Project, so-called surveillance technology oversight,
0: Larry, Larry,
1: testified on Tuesday. And um, joins us now to, uh, to fill us in on what's happening with cops and cameras. Um, Albert, welcome. It's so great to be back. Thanks for having me. So what's happening with cops and cameras? Well, they have a lot of them. They're getting a lot of
2: footage. And then there's not a lot of transparency on how that data is being used, who it's being given to. And more importantly, the safeguards to make sure that the public can use this video to keep an eye on the police rather than the other way around. So uh, we recently, just in the last couple of weeks, finally got the NYPD's critical response policy. This is a two-page order that says, here's what we're going to do when things really – when the shit hits a fan, when there's a really high-profile incident and there's a demand for public accountability. And we have video from these body cams. And so what they came up with was a checklist of factors, like more than a dozen different factors for whether or not footage should be released. It was
0: one of those factors uh, if there's no wrongdoing whatsoever on the part of the NYPD officer that I wore the body (laughs) cam.
2: I think the problem is that isn't in the text but it's between the lines. right? And because the person who gets to use all of these factors and all this discretion to decide whether or not this footage sees the light of day, it's the commissioner. It's the NYPD commissioner himself. And so suddenly you have the police policing themselves on whether or not this footage should go public. And one of the only bright line rules in the entire policy is a requirement that they not share the footage while the use of force investigation is ongoing. So if you have active criminal charges and you're a defendant, well, you're out of luck. You don't have privacy protections. But if you're an officer and you're accused of beating up a bystander, well, now your privacy suddenly is a bright line rule. Can we back up just a little bit for our listeners?
3: Because- at one point in time, so many communities of color mm-hmm. wanted body cams and increased surveillance of police officers because they knew that wrongdoings were, were occurring. That sentence structure is terrible. Uh, I've not had coffee yet. But then we've evolved to this idea of hyper surveillance and over policing and this lack of accountability that you spoke of. When did that shift sort of occur?
2: Yeah. So in 2014, we had this tantalizing promise that we were going to have this tool for public accountability. And this was in the aftermath of Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, so many police killings of unarmed black men. And we had – And women. And women. and Yes. And those three are far from the only deaths that we saw at the hands of police officers in 2014. And so – We had reports coming out from DOJ, from all these law enforcement oversight groups saying this can promote professionalism, reduce use of force, reduce community complaints. It sounded like a dream. Mm -hmm. But then we started to see the data. And the first good report came from Washington, D.C. There's a group down there, I think it's called the Lab at D.C., that did a controlled study of body cam impact on use of force, on complaints. They found no impact. None whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And then we started to see that a lot of the impact of body cam, it doesn't come down to whether or not they have the cameras. It comes down to the rules and the minutiae of, well, how long is the camera recording? Mm -hmm. How much discretion does the officer have about turning it on? You know, at the city council hearing we had a debate about well, is it enough if it's 30 seconds of backlog? Or should you have two minutes, like some what other? What was
0: the saying? word he, he used? A, there was a factor specifically for when the officers were supposed to turn the body camera on. And that was basically if a situation got hairy. Yeah. And but what did. How do we define when how do we define when something's about to get hairy? Um, and that was what was just mm-hmm. completely unclear. It was completely nebulous. And the deputy commissioner kind of stumbled over that question quite a bit.
2: And one of the things that we see in the field is there's, the officers aren't completely clear on it because you have incidents where you have a bunch of officers responding. Some of those officers are turning on their body cams, but maybe the officer closest to the victim isn't. Maybe that officer's camera is mysteriously turned off. And we've seen that in one recent incident. I, I'm blanking on the exact name, but there were, I believe there were five responding officers. Four of them had turned on their body cams, but the person who actually physically interacted with uh, the victim ended up not having their camera on. So we have to have these rules about what happens to officers when they don't turn on their body cam. So do you actually have real discipline?
3: I mean, are they subject to suspension or desk duty or any sort of reprimand?
2: Well, we get the same level of transparency that we see consistently with the NYPD disciplinary process, which means a brick wall and then a bunch of smoke. Because, like, right now, it's completely unclear how many officers have been suspended, if any, how many have faced other sanctions. When they were asked about this at the hearing, they said, well, it depends. It depends on all of these different factors. It depends and They couldn't give a clear answer for what consequences those officers face. And so this is part of the problem because you're basically turning the uh, body cam wearer, the officer, from someone who's under surveillance themselves into a director, into a film editor, into someone who has control over the narrative and the ability to shape how it is captured and shared. And especially because these officers then have access – to the footage after uh, it's uploaded. And they're involved in the process of handing it over to oversight bodies like the Civilian Complaint Review Board.
0: Yeah. Well, they, they said that as soon as the officer was back from shift, he did say that they put it on dock. The footage is then uploaded into a cloud. Um, what really struck me was, I mean, the officer can tamper with the footage. Uh, obviously, you're never going to have that between the shift and the upload. However, what struck me was that ADAs and district attorneys had access to that footage via a portal within 24 hours mm-hmm. in order to you know, build their case against anyone who might have been arrested, et cetera, et cetera. But the Civilian Complaint Review Board has 30 days and oftentimes are – just wildly backed up from getting access to that footage
2: earlier this year the ccrb complained that 40 percent of its requests for body cam footage had not been fulfilled and that in over a hundred cases the nypd had said we don't have any footage in this case and it later turned out that they did so there's a real issue with the ccrb getting timely access to the footage they need to hold the uh, officers accountable
1: so is the NYPD using facial recognition in conjunction with, uh, uh, with the body cameras at this point?
2: It appears that they are. So the NYPD operates the facial identification section, which uses facial recognition to take images from all sorts of video sources. So that could be the uh, camera at the local bodega. That could be the camera at the MTA station. It could also be a body cam. And so while it doesn't appear that they've deployed a specific facial recognition program just for body cams, based off of their description of using artificial intelligence at the hearing, it's, it seems that they are using facial recognition to analyze images, little
1: still photos taken from that footage. So, so taking a step back from that, Bloomberg's argument 15 years ago was about technological inevitability. Looking at the police and just looking at cameras generally now, as distinct from the police and the state, obviously has better access to other people's footage as well. To uh, you know, building surveillance cameras um, and, and various other types. Right. It seems like the the limitations right now with how this information is used are all technological. That there's limits to how long this can be stored for, which is why you have you know that 30 second cache that then disappears when you press record. It goes back a certain amount of time. Right. And that amount of time is limited. The amount of time you can store the footage is limited. But those are capacity issues and those are likely to disappear. And you know it does seem that we're sort of headed in a a panopticon direction where, where the choice is whether, whether the threat is everyone and everything and, and Facebook – and just how many cameras there are and things like Nest, which is work with various police departments, or if the fears here are, are particular to the police. I'm, I'm curious how you think about that as somebody thinks about policing and technology issues.
2: Yeah, so I don't think the the limit is primarily technological because you have the exact same technology available for sale you know, in Beijing, in Stockholm, Sweden, and in New York. And if you look at the privacy protections with the Swedish police agencies, they're worlds away. So they have automated license plate readers where they will not retain that image for longer than 30 days, where they will crop out all identifying information, where they will have something that has a lot of technical capabilities, but they don't use it because of the laws.
1: But that, that's, that's the case for the state, right, which the police are actually a part of in an interesting way, whereas a state that wants to, like China is doing mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, with, with parts of its Muslim population, for instance, can, can have effectively checkpoints everywhere. Everywhere yeah. there's a camera. Is a checkpoint. There's yep. facial recognition tied to it. This becomes an instrument of policing, and there's no technological limitation outside of appropriate laws and regulations to, to how, how this can all be used, I think.
2: I, yeah. I think that we're we're kind of saying the uh, same thing to an extent, which is that the technical limits are not going to be persistent here. What is going to be persistent are the value limits. It's going to be limits based on this by law. It's going to be updating the Fourth Amendment to really take account of the fact that you can search and seize a lot from us without actually taking physical possession of it. If you're using facial recognition to track me every single block of the city to get real-time location data on me, that is an invasion of my privacy rights just as much as if you put a GPS tag on my car. But right now, the GPS tag is regulated by the Fourth Amendment. The facial recognition isn't. And so we see this urgent need to update our privacy laws at the state and local level. Until the moment when the federal law and the constitutional jurisprudence can catch up and actually recognize that, holy shit, we are upending our fundamental notions of privacy and endangering some of the most central
1: values to an open and democratic society. So last question on this is uh, this mayor and mayors generally, look, the police departments are, are administrative. So, so they're supposed to enforce the laws. They have their own codes. You were just bringing some of this up, right? And they're constantly arguing that they should be allowed to regulate themselves. We have this procedure, and the law doesn't need to be involved in law enforcement that way. And that, that's what the patrol guide is, for instance, right? That that that's what body camera guidelines are. Like we don't we don't need laws. We don't need outside bodies. We're regulating ourselves. Mayors almost always go along with that, and this mayor certainly has in a lot of instances. Because they have control over the police, right? And they don't actually want the legislative body getting in the way of that. The council here has been fairly weak. Are there any signs that that this set of dynamics can change and that we're actually going to have stronger laws in this state or in this city that would actually constrain how the police operate and that would be enforceable?
2: Yeah. So we're seeing some really exciting bills in Albany. Uh, Brad Hoyleman introduced a ban on using facial recognition on body cameras. We've seen other bans on facial recognition in schools and other biometric protections. We've also uh, – we're working on bills to target reverse search warrants and other uh, new surveillance technologies.
1: But Explain he- <laughs> reverse search warrants to our listeners, but this is really
2: interesting. So reverse search warrant is where you upend the logic of a phone search and you say, instead of knowing who I'm looking for, you're saying, I think there's someone in the Upper East Side who uh, is connected to a case. So Google, hand me the user information for everyone in this part of the Upper East Side at this time. And then that can be two people. It can be 200 people. It can be 2,000 people. And this isn't theoretical. The Manhattan DA did this in the aftermath of the Proud Boys attack, and they didn't do it to target the Proud Boys. They did this to go after Antifa victims in order to find their identities and locate them. And they got individuals' phone information, device information, account information with this search, and it turned out none of them were actually the right people. And so these are tools that we are seeing deployed that claim to comply with our legal protections that you know the police, the district attorney say are consistent with the Fourth Amendment, but in my mind are completely out of place with the sort of protections we're supposed to have. And uh, to shamelessly plug my favorite bill of all time, the one I've been working on for two and a half years, the one that I so am excited to see become a law in the coming months, the Post Act at the state council level has now uh, 31 co-sponsors out of 51 city council members, overwhelming majority, and it would be the first comprehensive surveillance oversight bill for the NYPD in the organization's history. And it would require them to actually disclose every single uh, spy tool that they're deploying. And importantly, how that information is being shared. Mm -hmm. Is it being shared with ICE? Is it being shared with other federal agencies? How is information on bystanders being uh, retained? And this is an immigration rights issue, but it's also a social justice issue. And it's also a huge equity issue for communities of color because we see uh, surveillance tools like the Gang Database, which are 99 percent composed of New Yorkers of color. They're tracking them Accumulating their data and then putting them at a uh, risk of arrest, deportation, and uh, other
3: yeah, and and they're prospecting on who they think is going to be a criminal. Campaign. Now I've got a question about our our new police commissioner. I mean, he is a diversity hire since he's what a tall <laughs> police commissioner. <laughs> um, but when he was when he was announced, everyone kept saying that he was, you know, he's great at data and technology, data and technology, and that's sort of his hook. I'm not feeling confident about this new police commissioner when it comes to these issues, but do you have any insight about his past or anything that he's said or done in these recent months that would give us an indication as to where he's going to fall on these issues?
2: Oh, oh yeah. No, it, I've got an indication. It's horrifying. I mean, mm-hmm. w- just pull up his city council testimony on the gang database. I think it's from last year where he's being asked about the whether or not the gang database is discriminatory, whether or not it's invasive. And he defends it tooth and nail mm-hmm. when, at a moment when I believe there were 42,000 New Yorkers included on the database, many of whom are included just for using, quote, Gang affiliated colors, which can include red, blue, yellow green, just about any color I sure? I, I, what? I, <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean it's just ludicrous and and he's defended the DNA dragnets that we know have included the DNA of so many you know uh New Yorkers of color, especially um teenagers.
0: So Jemani Williams is calling for much more oversight as far as like asking for the information of data points of all of the footage that they get. So we're talking about how many times a camera messes up when the audio drops out, how many times a camera is pointed incorrectly. This could help with like cop training and all this stuff. But the pushback on it from the deputy commissioner uh, was that this would just cause so much labor in order to analyze all these videos to provide the city council with any amount of data on the actual footage. They went through a bunch of, like, long numbers, like, it would take 80 million jillion, it would take this many minutes, it would take, like, they had some sort of breakdown in order to make, elongate this, like, absurd paragraph.
2: Yeah, it was really a uh, master study in lies, damn lies, and statistics. It was just like, Mm -hmm. they were, just like, yeah, we would have to recruit all these hundreds of analysts and they cost seventy thousand a year plus fringe and They'd so have to
0: watch every single video. I'm like, Yeah. Oh no, Giamatti Williams pushed back, didn't he? He was like they were like it would cost this many millions and Giamatti was like, Yeah, but your budget is this many billions.
2: Yeah, and there were so he was like, Your budget's five point six billion and they're like, Well, people like to throw that number around, but what you don't realize is ninety percent of that is all uh salaries, so there's not that much wiggle room. It's like this is all salaries. How's that yeah, this doesn't actually negate that point? Then I would put this to them. We should be willing to invest as much money in police oversight as we're willing to invest in arresting people for jumping turnstiles because at the value of police accountability and using these oversight tools effectively is a lot more than 275.
0: They were evoking 50B, which we don't talk a lot about on this show because we mostly talk about 50A, which protects cops and their records. Um, but 50B they were talking about, which protects the public and juveniles' privacy and Can you just speak a little bit to how the spin works as far as – When the
1: NYPD brings up privacy concerns, what are they really saying?
2: Well, what they're really saying is that we want to have something to hide behind to not share this data with CCRB. And the idea that you can use 50B as an excuse to hide this data from the civilian complaint review board that's supposed to protect the public while you're giving all of that same data wholesale – to the prosecutors makes no sense to me. Like, if this footage is supposed to protect the public, the CCRB should have an easier time getting access than prosecutors should. And I think there was a great moment in the hearing where Donovan Richards Called them out on it, where they were talk, where the NYPD officials were talking about how they wanted to protect privacy, and he said, "Well, then I I'm sure you're going to be eager to pr- to help support the Post Act and reforms of the gang database and reforms of DNA dragnets."
3: So, is there anyone you you shouted out a few city council members who have taken the lead on this, and can you flesh that out for us just a little bit? But is there anyone in the NYPD? who seems like uh, they share our philosophy on sort of oversight and transparency. Have you been able to identify anyone that you could work with to help push through some of your agenda?
2: I, I feel like I've got a bit of a conflict of interest because I spent most of yesterday in court trying to sue them on, <laughs> on some of these things. So I have not found a wellspring of uh, collaboration from folks within the NYPD. I do think that – look, there are tons of you know officers who I've worked with in my career um, – Especially when I was representing victims of hate crimes, who, who were, you know, incredible, committed, empathetic, uh, caring individuals who wanted to serve the public. And I think what we've seen time and again is that there's really a bifurcation. There are two NYPDs. There's the community policing, you, know, uh, standard uh, precinct version of the NYPD. And that has its issues. But it has a lot of officers who are trying to make the system better and a lot of people throughout the hierarchy who are trying to support reforms in various ways. And then you have the intelligence side. Mm-hmm. You've got the national security side. Mm-hmm. And all I've seen time and again with the national security policing, it's just true believers who think that any time we push for oversight, we're endangering the public. I, I That somehow good government reforms and transparency and accountability are a threat. And I haven't seen that willingness to take it on when it comes to surveillance.
3: And then who on the city council side have you sort of seen as a leader in this
2: movement? Yeah. So uh, Donovan Richards is, you know, really keyly position because he chairs public safety and, um, you know, he is supporting the he's been supportive of the post act uh, recently. And, you know, we're hoping to have a hearing quite soon. Uh, Vanessa Gibson is the uh, lead sponsor of the bill. Brad Lander from Brooklyn has been very vocal in supporting the post Act. Uh Carlos Menchaca as well has been uh, quite supportive. And then uh, Jemani Williams, of course, I think, you know, even though he's public advocate, he still gets to co-sponsor and introduce stuff in the city council. And he's very much a, a, a vibrant and essential voice in these discussions.
0: So there is – there is the argument to be made that the CCRB, the Civilian Complaint Review Board, are civilians, right? And the district attorney that's an elected official, the people, the ADAs are supposedly held to a different standard than just a regular civilian. And so the argument is implied and could be made that they should have more unfettered access than the civilian complaint review board. One, what do you think about that? And two, what could we change about the members of the board in order to hold them as accountable as supposedly the DA's office is to get them that unfettered access?
2: I mean, I feel like this is a debate that's been ricocheting off itself since Rudy Giuliani led a riot over the Brooklyn Bridge to denounce the, <clears throat> to denounce the original proposal to have a CCRB. On the one hand, they push to make it as weak as possible, to strip it of its powers, to deprive it of authority. On the other hand, they say, well, it's not a prosecutor. It doesn't have authority. It doesn't have these powers that we've stripped from them. They shouldn't be entitled to the same access. And so I think we, you know, the charter revisions that recently passed are going to be helpful. I think broadening the scope is helpful. Having independent appointments is helpful. Having a larger budget going forward, having more of that power is going to be very helpful. But I think that the people who are policing the NYPD have to have just as much authority and power and autonomy as any prosecutor in the city, if not more so, because they are going to face even more pressure. They're going to face even more obstacles than any line ADA faces in prosecuting a run of the mill misdemeanor or even a felony case because they're – and so I I would say it's just the opposite, that the
1: CCRB needs more access to that footage. So – Big picture, since I was thinking this through, what does New York need to see happen in the next year or so, New York City? And um, what should all of us be looking for as uh, technology and capacity continues to improve to say our government and these companies are or are not doing right by?
2: So I think we need to look at facial recognition. You know, we, That's an easy way to keep track of where we are compared to other states. San Francisco's banned it. Oakland's banned it. Uh, Somerville, they're a growing list of cities that banned it. Massachusetts is yeah. considering a statewide moratorium on it. And we haven't even begun to touch it. So I think that's one area where it's easy to look.
0: Not but, Michigan, though. <laughs> not no, right now. <laughs> not
2: Not yet but i I think that's one area where it's going to be easy to keep track, but then the growing number of cameras in public spaces it you know a lot of the surveillance that is most powerful is completely invisible the databases, the forms of artificial intelligence, the way that our social media is being scraped all of this is invisible. But we can. there are parts that we can keep track of. And when we see them putting up cameras at every turnstile in Fulton, when we see them putting up all these things that will enable expanded facial recognition, when we talk about bills that would potentially ban repeat harassers from the subway, which will almost certainly involve facial recognition, that's when the atten- uh, antenna need to go up. And then looking at... You know the um, bills up in Albany. Just looking at these sort of test cases, are we going to ban police drones like uh, Jessica Ramos wants us to? Are we going to ban facial recognition in school? Are we going to ban these types of surveillance? And public so,
3: housing. I mean, they definitely uh, want to sort of hyper surveil anyone in public housing, which is of great concern.
2: Oh yeah, and there. I think we keep seeing that it is some of the. Poor, more vulnerable communities that are targeted with this technology mm-hmm. first. We're not seeing the facial recognition Detroit. used for security on 5th Avenue. Mm-hmm. You know, and the uh, museum mile. We're not seeing um this uh, technology being deployed in those parts of town. What we see is uh landlords using this technology as a way to evict tenants. There there's one uh uh company that has a promotional video where they talk about how great their facial recognition tool is at enabling you to convert uh, uh, units to market price, evict unwanted tenants, and, and help uh, increase your, your profitability.
0: What company is that?
2: Uh, I believe uh, it's GuardGate by Trayman. Uh, uh There's an article um, in CNET from Alfred Neng, I believe, uh, that talks about some of those promises.
1: And last, last question. So what's happening with the domain awareness system? And how should we think about congestion pricing in relation to all this? Uh, well, we're going to have some
2: big news in the coming weeks on uh, <laughs> congestion pricing. We, we're we looking at how um, that particular system, as it's being rolled out, is going to potentially track each and every one of us. So that report will be uh, really exciting when it breaks. and Will you come back and – Oh, Walk us through uh, it. I will always be happy to come back. And so, with with congestion pricing, with the new Omni Fair payment system, we see all these ways What's to that? that's the new tap and go alternative to the Metro Card. Okay, and Ugh, with, little yeah. iPads attached to toggle. the
0: turnstile, and then cameras. It's like let me tap my card yeah. and take a picture of my face, and then like you know right. decide whether I'm going to go into the Soylent machine or <laughs> the
3: other machine. I mean, why do we need all this hyper technology when so we get to go through the turnstile really quickly and then wait 30 minutes for the train? Like, I'd rather you not have hyper iPad technology to get through the turnstile and actually have a train that comes every four minutes. I
2: mean, this morning it took me 15 minutes to get from Bowling Green to Wall Street. and I Well, there was a sick passenger uh, as they uh, muffled to all of us. But but I'm sure the Omni, like, Mm -hmm. saved me valuable seconds ahead of time. No, but with all of these (laughs) systems, we see more and more data being collected on more and more New Yorkers without any safeguards, without any privacy protections, and without any recognition of the fact that this is all a giant treasure trove for ICE. Because I can swoop in and get any of it. And whether it's uh, congestion pricing or the payment chip that they've suggested for IDNYC uh, Mm -hmm. cards or any of these new smart cities initiatives, we really have to push back and say, do we need all this data? How are we actually protecting it? How are we protecting vulnerable communities? And how are we making sure that's not weaponized against the New Yorkers who we promise to protect with these programs?
0: I have one more question. Are there any, and maybe Albert, you don't want to say. Yeah. <laughs> and you might not want to say, but are there any, like, you know, as we see in these sci fi movies of the past, like, say, you know, Blade Runner or anything, are there like rogue saboteurs of cameras that are like underground kind of famous like –
2: The Banksy of spray painting security cameras or something like that. Right, like the
0: the, the William Gibson neuromancer activist kind of like sabotage
2: the wires guy. I mean the closest we've seen to that are the people who attacked Link NYC kiosks, those – Orwellian phone booth replacements that are part billboard, part tracking machine, part really insecure Wi-Fi. And someone went around and was pointing out that these things all have cameras. I
1: come- did some fantastic reporting on this for the Village Voice. When there was a Village Voice, I, I couldn't recommend strongly enough. The, my favorite part of those things is uh, – is the dystopian way in which they become hangouts for uh, um, a village in particularly for like the, uh, you know, the, the, the traveling gutter punks and, and mm-hmm. like people who are here seasonally and um, just sort of set up shop around these. So you've got like your glowing future dystopian screen, yeah. And they're then you very the old underneath. school, stick
0: and poke tattoo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think they're called crust punks now. It,
1: it's like it's like a it's like a vision out of Frank Miller's fascist mind. It's really quite. Remarkable. It really is. <laughs> I mean,
2: it's like all the money invested in selling us more shit and giving us these like public uh, smart things. Yes, these new smart infrastructure, and we can't provide housing. We can't provide the bare necessities. We. It really. I mean, it's a tragic sort of synecdoche of so much of the inequality we see in uh, in New York. But no, I I mean, with all of this public infrastructure, we have to be careful about the data because data is the new oil. Everyone says that. It is incredibly valuable. Our cities need to be stewards of that, especially for vulnerable communities. And what they're doing instead is trying to sell us out to the highest corporate bidder and making it into a new way to track each and every one of us for police at the same time that isn't a model that works for me. It's not a model that's sustainable and something we really have to start to push back against uh, dramatically as a city.
3: Oh, my gosh. You are doing the Lord's work, <laughs> and we appreciate you, Albert. Um, promise you'll come back. Uh,
2: and S- Say when, I'll be here. Yeah. And
3: let us know, um, keep us updated on the POST Act, how it moves through city council. Um, are you confident that you can see some movement in the next year or so with it now that you've got 31
2: oh, signatures? Oh, I think it will be a lot sooner than that. I, I think we're looking at a hearing in the near term. And uh, I, I think, look, we have the votes. So the question is going to come down to whether Corey Johnson wants to be the person who pushes the oversight to end the digital stop and frisk of communities of color or whether he wants to, you know, let this uh, sort of suspicionless surveillance continue indifferently. And I I think, you know, it's going to be very interesting as we see it play out in the context of the mayor's race because I know that there are a lot of folks who have seen – you know, a progressive Park Slope city council member turned public advocate who is really in favor of reforming the police suddenly lose that backbone when it came to time to do that uh, from Gracie Manchin. And so I, I, you know, a lot of people are going to want to see that Corey Johnson is consistent on these issues because he co-sponsored this bill the first go round in 2017. He's been silent on it for the most part so far. With the exception of a question uh, that you were kind enough to ask uh, a couple episodes ago and and so really, I think it's going to come down to his leadership on whether or not we push this through and just have the vote
1: with that, what's all sing the bare necessities, the <laughs> Armstrong yes, version? That- Bare
0: necessities,
1: the simple bare necessities. necessities. Forget about <laughs> your well, words and your decisions. I mean, hello,
3: Albert, join in. Oh, oh this is the best seed
1: in na- brought in by like your mother nature. Our is the bare necessities. Bear necessities.
3: <laughs> FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and is supported by listeners like you. We're headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, where this week's episode was recorded. A special thanks goes to Albert Fox Khan. He is from the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, also known as STOP. You can find him on StopSpying.org. Alex Lynn is our executive producer, and Adam Kamara mixed and mastered this week's episode. Remember, you can't spell WTF without FAQ. What?!
0: That script,
3: as you all know, what? I am basically, um, what's Get name? the name? I oh, thought Barrel that Don't From crazy. Anchorman. W- I read anything.
0: F. This is your new script. I should have listened.
3: Read it. If this is the digital stop and frisk.